Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Dawn Lister of Anahata Yoga Centre based in the UK. Today we are very happy to welcome Karen Atkinson. Karen is the owner of Mindfulness UK, which is a training school that trains mindfulness teachers. I'm going to let her explain that in more detail. She's also, also author of a book called Compassionate Mindful Inquiry in Therapeutic Practice. And both Daniel and I have had the great honor and privilege and fun of having trained alongside um, or with Karen um, on a number of her courses and um, read her book, which is incredible. It's always on my shelf and off my shelf. I use it a lot uh, when I'm teaching. Um, so we're really excited to speak to Karen today about mindfulness, mindfulness in the world, about compassion practices and about who and who mindfulness is good for, what it's good for, why would you do it? Why wouldn't you do it? Is there ever a time where it would be a bad thing to do? So lots, lots to talk about, and I'm sure there'll be lots of other other stuff that we'll, we'll cover as well. So welcome, Karen. Lovely to see you. Oh, thanks so much, Dawn and Daniel. So lovely to be here. Thank you. So let's check in. Let's see how we are doing. Daniel, let's start with you. What, what's your week been like? How, how are you doing? My week's been quite a productive week, work-wise. Um, I've been getting into actually um, a new podcast. Um, well, it's not new necessarily, but it's new to me. Um, it's called I Way, and it's um, hosted by a lady called Jamila Jamil. And um, I don't know if either of you have heard of it before, but she's a she is in um, a very famous TV program. I think it's called The Small Fate. No, The Small Place, um, which is basically about philosophy. But Jamila has kind of gone through the ranks of being a kids TV presenter in the UK and then moved to Hollywood. And on her move to Hollywood, she became one of the victims of these kind of celebrity chat magazines where they were, you know, they'll show a picture of Jamila falling out of a nightclub saying her breast size and her waist size and where her shoes were from and, you know, how much she drank. And she just got really aggravated with it. And she started this, I think it was a, an Instagram page initially called iWay. And it was all about actually the media is presenting me in a certain way, but actually I weigh so much more than that. I've got all these amazing things that I've done in my life that get overlooked. One, because I'm a woman. Two, because I'm a South Asian woman. <laughs> and three, because actually the industry that I'm in puts so little value on what I do. So she started this kind of revolution. It's been going on for quite a few years now. And the podcast has kind of come off the back of that. So she interviews really, really interesting people, some celebrities, a lot of doctors and a lot of people that work in healthcare services all around actually the detrimental effect of marginalization of women, of other parts of society. That was dumb dog. <laughs> but it's a really, really fascinating um, podcast. Um, very funny. She's very honest. She really, you know, she really struggles with her mental health. And the podcast started at the start of lockdown. So it's been a journey with her. And there's been times when she hasn't been able to record because her depression has been really bad. And it's just completely kind of one of those podcasts that encapsulates the whole of somebody rather than it just being a very little image of what they want to project into, into the, the world. So I would thoroughly recommend checking it out. I've, um, I follow her on Instagram. I have done for a couple of months. I think she's amazing. She's, she's so inspirational and positive and just me. It even made me, I mean, I'm quite anti kind of talking about what someone's size is. I kind of think it's completely mm. irrelevant conversation. I don't know why it even comes into a conversation, but I love her. That thing you were talking about that she does like, I, and I, I weigh and that I weigh how kind I am. I weigh what I've learned. I weigh that I'm a daughter, I'm a friend. Um, I weigh that I, I read or that I like to walk, all that stuff. And I kind of think that's such, it's just such a powerful message for not just women, for everybody really, you know, to not be so obsessed about 
you know, how they look. She's a huge advocate as well of the LGBT community. And actually, she aligns herself with the LGBT community uh, in that um, she, she doesn't necessarily um, fit into a, a gender norm herself. So that's how she defines herself. And actually, she got a huge amount of backlash for that because she didn't look in a certain way. So then, you know, there was all this kind of storm around her and what she'd said and trying to sort of piggyback off the LGBT community. But actually, if you listen to what she has to say, she has the most amazing people on that normally wouldn't get the kind of radio space to be able to talk about any of these things. And she gives them a platform where she's now got literally thousands and thousands of followers. So, you know, she's a she's a huge advocate and I see her as an ally for for my community you know she's yeah someone to to really take the time to maybe research and 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 listen to so you what's her podcast called I Way I Way I need to check that out we'll stick that in the um notes alongside this so you guys can all check it out maybe she'll come on and talk to us shall we ask her we can only ask I think we'll ask her (laughs) come on I Way we'd love to chat to you (laughs) You, you you all got introduced to my lovely dog Norman, who's like the oldest, most miserable, bad breath Scotty you could ever meet. And uh, he, we got him when he was six. He was a rescue, and he hated everybody, and pretty much still does. He's twelve now. Um, so we kind of had two years. We couldn't even have people at home because he'd bite them. <laughs> he's a little so and so. So he sits in here usually fast asleep when we're recording, like snoring on his. Um, he has bought yoga bolsters. He sits up in a little restorative pose, you know, it's very sweet. So, um, but he, he saw the jack doors in my garden. Before the podcast, we were talking about the ravens in my garden. We worked out they're actually jack <laughs> Yeah. Not sure if I'm disappointed or not, but they're jack doors. They're definitely jack doors, but he was barking like mad at them. So um, we've we've dispatched Norman. He's gone indoors. He can't be here barking. And uh, yeah, so so I've been I've been doing a lot of bird watching this week, getting all the birds wrong, clearly. But I've had a very, I had a really difficult menopausal week. You're still going to have to have a menopausal week, Daniel. We're going to talk about menopause in the podcast. You mm. can talk about how you don't want to hear about it all the time. And I can talk about how it destroys my life every couple of months. <laughs> I was I was desperate last week. It was like being 15. I had spots and miserable and wanted everybody to move out. And dreadful. So I spent a lot of time sitting in my garden looking at birds and thinking, they're the only things in the world I like. <laughs> I think it was, there was at least two days where the kids said, do you hate us? I'm like, no, I just prefer birds. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that's my week's been menopause and birds, getting them wrong mainly, and, uh, and, and some work. So it's been, it's been a right week. Could have been worse, could have been. not too bad. What about you, Karen? What have you been up to? Yeah, I've been out in the garden too. I love my garden. I had a ton of compost um, delivered, so um, I've been busy <laughs> shoveling. I'm, I'm quite an earthy person. I love a good dig, so um, I've been doing that, getting my veggie plot ready. And um, yeah, spring is um, has sprung in my garden, so that's lovely. And yeah, work-wise, um, yeah, I had actually quite a busy week with our, we launched our new website. And um, so, yeah, do you have a look at that? Um, I've, I'm put dotting the I's and crossing the T's for our e-course, our next e-course that's coming out, which is about mindful movements, which I've put together, uh, something that I feel really, really passionately about. So, um, yeah, lot, lots of things are coming to fruition that I've put in place for many, many months. And, uh, oh, it's just such a delight to see them. Um, yeah, coming together and particularly the e-course. I'm so excited to get that out there too. So, yeah, yeah, really um, mixed, blended week, which has been nice. Lovely. Hmm. Sounds very productive. Yeah, feels that. Yeah, it does. I, I came out one morning and, and it was sort of just a few days after snow and there was bulbs all of a sudden. It was mm. Very exciting seeing beautiful little bulb, bulbs on. Yeah. I head through, through the mud looking. Oh, I love it. Mm. I don't remember planting them though. <laughs> I genuinely have no recollection of ever planting a bulb in my life. So I don't know where they've come from. Maybe someone else did it. Never know. Mm. 
I'm kind of feeling like my garden's a bit like me at the moment. Things are sprouting, but they're not quite ready to pop out yet. <laughs> I'm not quite there. I'm still, I'm still in the safety of lockdown. <laughs> in my full menopausal flow, things are sprouting on my chin, lips, and everything. Oh, no. <laughs> Too much information. <laughs> I can't oh. wait for the beauty salons to open so I can be <laughs> like a female. <laughs> <laughs> I could have a beard. If I left it for a month, I'd have a beard. I'm sure I would. Oh, no. Anyway, moving on, moving on. I do like to have a laugh, but moving on. Karen, we, we I've been very, very fortunate to have you as um, one of my tutors um, in my mindfulness training, which is something I learned such a huge amount from. I'm very grateful mm -hmm. for it. Put me on a, a path of... Um, greater learning it really opened a lot of windows and doors for me in, in my own learning and my own practice and therefore in my own teaching I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey into mindfulness like how did you how did you get there what does it mean for you what why are you so passionate about it and and also a little bit about your company so yeah to you okay yeah thank you um it, mindfulness and compassion mean the world to me um it, the two combined are just so important for me and gosh where to start really um you know I had I had a challenging childhood and um spent much of it looking after the emotions and the um, psychological well-being of other people so it's no no real um surprise I then went into nursing um, and carried on that path of taking care of other people and then I, I suppose I mean, it was actually in my teenage years, I started um, listening and reading to things around um, the mind-body connection. And um, I remember listening to a radio station uh, a few times where they were doing some hypnosis. And I was thinking, oh, this is really fascinating uh, how your mind can really impact. They were asking you to lift your hand and then you can put your hand back down again and I was thinking this is just incredible and so it was really quite early on I suppose that I got him interested in this mind-body connection and then um, I went on to do a nursing degree which had psychology and sociology and um, things in it as well as obviously learning how to <laughs> give an injection or whatever and uh, begun exploring it for myself exploring um, some meditation practices um, mainly as a way of looking after myself and taking care and to, to really feel into touch into this mind body connection I was also very sporty I was always um, either on the netball court or playing tennis or rounders baseball whatever um, I was brought up in Australia in my um, youth so baseball was a thing um, so yeah, there was the physical sensations that you know I really loved being in my body. I'm very, a very embodied person, and then I felt like I wanted to to use that um, experience of my body with um, helping to calm me down and to to be able to manage emotional reactivity and things. And it kind of came really naturally. It didn't. It wasn't. I didn't wake up one morning and think, right, I'm going to start meditating or. I'm going to start doing some yoga or whatever. Um, so yeah, I started with meditation and yoga practice, and and you know the yoga practice, the mindful movement aspect is still my first love. It's my go-to practice. Um, anything that's causing me some anxiety or stress, it's get that mat out and do some body work. Um, you know, it really has helped me to to work through my trauma from my childhood. Um, and to, to, to feel very grounded and um, kind of get back in control, really, um, and, and feel connected. You know, that's, that's what it's about, is feeling really connected to myself and to my needs and how to look after myself really well. So um, I started with those. And then just through my nursing, really, I started to work more clinically with mindfulness and compassion with the patients I was working with. So First of all, I was a district nurse um, and instead of just going in and changing uh, dressings for leg ulcers, I might stop a while and um, do some breath awareness practice with them uh, or whatever and started to recognise the real value of that in the clinical setting and for working with long term 
um, conditions of pain and um, medical conditions and um, through trauma and all sorts of things. And then I started working with a team of um, consultant psychologists and a pain consultant. And I did that for many years. And I was working, you know, every day, six, eight patients a day, um, teaching them mindfulness and compassion, really, uh, clinically. I remember them saying, we don't know what you get up to <laughs> with them in the, when they come to your therapy room, but keep doing it because it's really working. Um, and, you know, that was about 20 years ago now, nearly 20 years ago. So it was a real um, a learning experience for me. And I was putting all of the different aspects of myself into practice um, with these patients who were in places of being really stuck and and have been through lots and lots of different um, therapies and so on and not really got anywhere. So mindfulness and compassion was helping them. But at the same time, it was really helping me to work through my um challenges and difficulties as well and then I, I just I kind of got to the end of feeling that I could keep going at that pace with um, uh, people at, at that level all the time you know one-to-one -one and hearing all the stories I was hearing and I wanted to uh, teach some groups and to move more into doing some teacher training so I then went into um, looking for somewhere for myself so at that time I was working in the NHS and privately, and I just took a big deep breath, thought, okay, it's now or never sort of thing. And um, my husband's a commercial property agent and I came home from London, from um, work one day and there it was on the kitchen table, this um, particulars about a, a, a specific place um, in Taunton and said, well, what about that, about opening a center? And there it was. So <laughs> went to have a look and um, yeah, bought this property to set up as a mindfulness center. Um, whereas mindfulness and other therapies. So it had some it had lots of different purposes really. So yeah, we got the builders in for three months, gutted the place, um, set it all up. And that was pretty much 11 years ago to the day. And uh, I can so remember sitting in there waiting for the gas to be connected for the hot for the heating for this whole property and thinking now what it's got beautiful carpet it's got lovely furniture what am I going to do um so it came from a place of of real it was it was in my gut and my heart I had to do this it was like it was I just had this strong desire to help people in in a way that felt in a less clinical um, more gentle more wholesome and rounded and to sort of cast the net wider so that uh, it wasn't only people who had been through really really significant difficulties but wanted to help learn how to manage difficulties a little bit more um it, people perhaps who are suffering with some anxiety or some levels of stress or or just wanted to see things slightly differently and and because i've been doing it by that stage for I don't know, about 15 years, probably. Um, I felt that I was quite well equipped to be able to uh, support people in, in a different way to the more clinical therapeutic intervention. Um, so, yeah, I, started, I kept on teaching yoga. I'd been teaching yoga by then for about 20 years. So I kept um, on teaching yoga and I got therapists into the property and um, started teaching classes and courses and uh, slowly but surely it all started to build up so yeah the, the mindfulness aspect of it um, was just wonderful for me in that it 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 came from the clinical world I knew it was going to change I just could feel it in my bones <laughs> I knew this is what we needed um, more generally and so um, yeah just kept on telling people about mindfulness you know how wonderful it is and and it was like the world kind of shifted with me it's just it's incredible how these things happen, isn't it? And um, it, it came out into the more common um, understanding of what mindfulness was. And so uh, that was sort of my, my first part of the story. And then the, the second part really, if you like, is um, I then in 2013 was diagnosed with cancer. And so I've been through all this. I felt like I'd really um, worked through a lot from, from my early years and um, had started to really establish uh, Mindfulness UK. 
and then cancer came and so obviously I had to really look after myself and I recognized how much mindfulness helped me in that um but I remember this is something very specific that I was sitting in my practice one day doing my mindfulness practice and just thinking I can I know I've got cancer I know I might die um but my mindfulness practice just isn't serving me well. You know, I, I'm here with the reality of it and it's so painful and I don't know what to do with that. So although I'd done some compassion before and I was very good at looking after other people and taking reasonable care of myself, I decided to really kind of look at compassion in a, in a new way and dig, do a really deep dive into it. Um, so very luckily, you know, I, I know people to talk to about it. Um, I had lots of books already. Um, I read a lot of work by Tara Brack and Kristen Neff, Christopher Germer, um, and lots of self-investigation. And I had such a lot of support, something that didn't come easily to me. I, I reached out and um, asked for help, which in itself is really significant. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the compassion side of it helped to rebuild me, put me back together again and helped me to see things in a completely different way. Um, so I've come, I came back to work, um, having obviously survived, um, been through all the treatments and everything. And it, I, things just changed. Um, people who've been coming to my yoga classes had said, has just started saying, oh, I've been teaching for, say, 10 years or something, started to say, cool, you teach really differently now. There's something really um, extraordinarily changed about the way that you conduct yourself and the language that you use and how you're teaching us, which, which for me was really so interesting. So, yeah, the compassion side of um, my mindfulness practice and the mindful side of my compassion practice just was so completely intertwined. And uh, so that, that's why there's a <laughs> teacher training um, qualification now called Integrating Mindfulness and Compassion in Professional Practice, um, which I wrote and developed um, and is with the Counselling and Psychotherapy Central Awarding Body. And it's so very, it's very personal to me, um, having written it because it comes from both my clinical background, but also my my more um more obviously personal experience and just knowing that these skills are so so profoundly beneficial and um, that they they literally changed my life um supported me in my life hugely and continue to do so forevermore really hopefully um and i just over the these um lockdown period i've kind of fallen even deeper in love with the practices and my embodiment practices I just do my mindful movement and yoga and, and compassion practices every single day and um, I can't imagine living life without them really so um, yeah I hope that answers your question <laughs> yeah yeah That's, what, mm. a, what a beautiful journey mm. so mm. it's it's inspiring to hear how you've used what was a very challenging time for you growing up mm. and you've used the stuff that you learned to support you to help others and you know you really have helped thousands and thousands and probably yeah over time with your wonderful book which as I did say I, I use regularly you know millions of people yeah. um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna strip it right back I'm gonna yeah. ask very specific questions for re for listeners nearly said readers listeners <laughs> who um perhaps have never done mindfulness before. Mm. So if I, if they were, if they're listening to this and thinking, you know what, I've had some difficult times and I quite fancy trying a bit of mindfulness. Could you, could you explain to them firstly what, what mindfulness is and how it can help them? Yeah, sure. So mindfulness is being aware. It's, it's dropping into the present moment and becoming aware of what's really here. So it's facing our reality, really, I suppose, but um, in a tender, gentle, kind way. Uh, and, and what that means is that we can acknowledge what's gone on before, of course, but, but we actually only have right now and right now. And, and so we are products of, of the past, but it doesn't mean that it, it has to completely overwhelm or influence 100% what our experience is in the moment. 
So we can, in, to some extent, we can draw a line between what's happened in the past and say, well, yes, I, I validate it, I acknowledge it, but but this is this is what I have right here and now. And what does that feel like? So what does it feel like in my body? What what emotions are here for me? Um, and by doing that, right, we can, to an extent, let go. We can let go of perhaps attachments of the past or um, difficulties we might be holding on to. Um, so that's very refreshing. And I think in a therapeutic sense, it's very refreshing because we're not trying to go over what's gone on in the past. We're saying, okay, what we have is right now. And also often what we do is in the here and now, we're looking to the future. And often that looking to the future is quite catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And um, we so we can be catastrophizing about, oh my goodness, this is going to happen. And maybe that's going to happen. And our brains don't actually know the difference between um, what, what we're thinking is going to happen in the future or what when we're looking at the past or what's going on right now. So if we're, we're worrying about the future, our brains are thinking it's happening right now. So we have this um, cascade of events that go through the body that's like a stress response if we're, if we're thinking about the future or the past. So again, it's a letting go um, and an acknowledgement of this is what we've got right now and that the compassion, the gratitude side of it is very much exploring well, what can I feel happy about? What joy is here for me in this moment? And I've just actually, between, before this um, podcast, have been teaching a group of um, professionals in the social care sector. And we've done um, a practice around um, gratitude and just done 10 finger gratitude. So one finger, one thing that we're grateful for and the next finger. And just took, you know, three minutes over thinking about 10 things that we're grateful for. And the feedback is, always when I do that practice or similar is um, I didn't realize I had so much joy and kindness and, and things to be um, that fulfill me and make me happy in this moment. So that's what we're doing. We're letting go of, of past and future and worries and concerns and just dropping into the here and now, taking ourselves from autopilot into real being mode to enrich our lives and um, help us to feel happier and more contented yeah Karen, when you were first speaking you mentioned you when you had or you found out about you having cancer you 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 kind of directed your practices more towards a compassion based practice mm -hmm. and it might be useful for people to understand what maybe the difference is between a mindfulness based practice and a compassion based practice because i i I, I didn't realise there was a difference until, you know, much later on in my sort of training. I thought yeah. it was kind of part of it, but actually to pull that out. And, you know, I was so fortunate to have had you as one of my tutors when I was becoming a yoga therapist and you taught us all around compassion as well as, you know, how the body works and it's all, all autonomic functioning and all the illnesses and diseases <laughs> that we could get and we might face in it with our yoga therapy clients. But to really understand the difference between mindfulness and compassion and actually where the bridge is between the two of them and also when it might be relevant to approach one more than the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, such a such a good question, isn't it? And um you know, in some traditions like Buddhism, mindfulness and compassion, they're completely intertwined and um, we can be um, mindful in a compassionate way and we can be compassionate very mindfully. And um, I think what's happened in the West is that we've separated the two out. And so that what is being taught um, as mindfulness, you know, it's really powerful and absolutely fantastic, but it feels separate to compassion and mindfulness has got the light shining on it and compassion has been sort of left to the side a little bit. So um, mindfulness is about being, is about um, being with what is here and the reality of that, our patterns of behavior, um, our patterns of thoughts, um, feeling the sensations of the body, whether it's pain or um, difficulty, tension or whatever, and just letting it be. So that's what mindfulness is, but compassion is much about much more about wise action. So what happens sometimes for people, and this is, you know, I've heard this so many times in my clinical career, is that 
with mindfulness, it's all well and good peeling back the layers um, of our defenses to see what the reality is. But then what do you do with it? And people can be left feeling very kind of vulnerable and raw with that or or feeling sort, sort of incapacitated in that, oh, I can see that my life is really painful or that this condition is really difficult to handle. So what do we do is we bring in compassion, which helps to kind of warm things up, to give ourselves the opportunity to be um, able to take care on a deeper level, um, to, to make choices about the self-soothing that perhaps we need to do um, internally with our dialogue or to physically look after ourselves more. Um, so yeah, it's much more of a doing, it's a, it's a wise action, a doing thing so that we're, we're doing some really positive, life-enhancing, um, nurturing, caring, kind things for ourselves, uh, which means that then we have more resources and resilience to be able to support not only ourselves, but other people in a really congruent way. So it's like, um, yeah, mindfulness peels back the layers and then compassion helps to build back up again um, with, with softer, more tender layers of mindfulness. I, I suppose with, with, like you said, the process of mindfulness is almost a tool in itself, mm -hmm. but then actually to apply the compassion part could be really difficult for people if they've never done that before. Mm -hmm. And actually to need to, the need to do that maybe in a supportive environment with a teacher or a group or someone that can hold you while you're doing that, mm -hmm. you know, and trying to do that on your own, if you're facing death or you're facing, you know, something really, really distressing in your life that has come about by, or you're, you're very aware of it because of your mindfulness practice, mm. that can feel like a real step. So I can understand why it's almost been separated slightly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 no, absolutely. And I can't, that so resonates with me because I, I was there with cancer, seeing the reality of the situation and it did feel so raw and vulnerable. And I was lucky that I had support networks of people that I really, um, uh, knew would support me uh, so much so authentically and I could turn to them and they were to, you know to inviting me with practices to do to share with them to to check in with them and so on and um I remember how I squirmed internally it was so against everything I'd br been brought up to believe um and our society supports us to believe you know we're meant to be so giving and compassionate to others but this whole thing about being compassionate to ourselves, you know, there's there's guilt and selfishness and, and navel gazing and, and all this kind of connotations around it. So I, I really did um, struggle to begin with, but that's why it's called compassion practice um, because you practice and you practice and you keep on going and then uh, it, it becomes much more familiar um, and so yeah having support to do it whether it's one-to-one -one or in groups or um, you know finding your sangha or whatever it is it, it's very very important because if something's difficult you might try it once or twice and think nah it's not for me but it, it's the support that and the talking about it the inquiry so that's why I wrote a book about it it's the inquiry that really helps you to see, oh, actually, yeah, that is there. And if I do it like this, it can help. Um, and one thing that I, I worked with quite a lot was because it felt so squirmy, <laughs> to use that word again, for me to begin with, was I imagined my best friend, um, who is um, at the time was a stump woman, a South African stump woman, and um, marshmallow inside. And what, what, what she would have said if I'd have been beating myself up a bit, pushing myself, say at work, for example, oh, I'll just do another email, I'll just stay an hour longer or whatever. And imagining what she would say, which would have been something like, oh, it's okay, Karen, um, you know, you've been working really hard today, why don't you just go home and chill and put your feet up a bit or go for a walk or, you know, the work will be there tomorrow. So I couldn't do that internally, but so I started off with somebody external just imagining and then her voice became my internal voice and now I've let go of her voice and it's mine so there are lots of different devices that I've learned um, that really help um, to to engage with this self-compassion 
and, and to make it feel comfortable and acceptable for me. Um, and I still work with it all the time. You know, those triggers are there, the, the hard wiring's still there, um, but it's, it's how soft, how compassion helps to soften that. So awareness helps you to see it and compassion helps you to soften and think, oh yeah, I have got a different set of resources now to be able to, to deal with that or to, to support myself in quite a different way. So yeah. I love hearing you talk about compassion practices. Um, I remember, um, because as you know, I came to mindfulness through Buddhism. So the first mm -hmm. lesson I had was the Metta Bhavan. Yeah. Which for those who don't know is the loving kindness practice. So we were taught about compassion for ourselves, compassion for someone we don't know, compassion for someone who challenges us and compassion for the wider world. And, you know, for decades, that was my main practice. Yeah. And, uh, and I couldn't even begin to, when I first did a secular mindfulness practice to see them separated off mm. like, like dry toast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> word I would choose. Yeah. yeah. Horrible dry toast. Yeah. I was like, oh, where's the heart in this? This feels so empty. I don't like it. Put me in a really bad mood, actually. I think Daniel, <laughs> remember, I was like, what, what? doing it like this i don't like it <laughs> and then the compassion practice comes in mm. and it feels so you can't really i mean it's beautiful i think you can't for me you can't have one without the other you know and, and you're speaking about when you were speaking about you know the self-compassion practices and using your friend's voice and then that become your own voice i was thinking what kind of happens over time isn't it is that with the mindfulness mindful awareness and the compassion practices this like wise intuitive self emerges mm. kind of mm. sits in your heart mm. and as long as you make space to listen to him or her they will they'll look mm. after you mm -hmm. and, and mm. i i know for myself that if i don't make space i don't know what's going on and how i'm feeling because your old coping strategies creep in and you start doing them so for me that would always be overworking mm -hmm. Um, and just busying myself all the time. So you'll be on your phone, you'll be answering emails, you'll be planning workshops mm -hmm. a really unmindful way. <laughs> and then you'll start to notice it in your body and you'll, you know, maybe get snappy or tired or exhausted. You get more susceptible to catching illnesses. Um, your relationships might start to suffer. And then if you, hopefully, if you're practicing your mindfulness, you'll notice that very early on. You'll say, oh, look, I'm not quite myself today. I'm feeling uptight feeling hot and burning or whatever your particular thing is and that then your inner voice is kind of whispering in the background going well let's do something different would you would you agree with that mm, yeah absolutely I think I think the key to it is to give ourselves permission or for somebody else to give you permission to be self-compassionate and and to show you the way and and then absolutely you do tap into that innate sense of compassion but I think it's so um, sort of taken away from us, you know, during our childhood and things that we have to kind of re-engage with it. It's like, you know, with mindfulness, we were born mindful as children. You know, we used to love being in our bodies and cycling about. And I was brought up in Australia, as I said, and hanging upside down in trees and <laughs> just doing all sorts of things, spinning around till I was so dizzy and I fell over and thinking it was hilarious. You know, that that's what children do. We're really mindful. We're not worrying about when we grow up, how we're going to pay the mortgage. It's just the sun shining, you know, off we go, let's go and play. And that's exactly the same with self-compassion. But we, we lose that uh, capacity um, to be self-compassionate. So it's about um, either giving ourselves or somebody else giving you permission to, to be self-compassionate and showing you the way to re-engage with that. Yeah, so that, that's what's important. It's there already and, and we, we need to touch into it and let it re-emerge, yeah. I was, I was really interested to hear your point of view on why you think we find it so difficult to be compassionate towards ourselves. Mm. Um, I've got some ideas and I think one of them is very much we are brought up, unless we're very fortunate, mm. to kind of dumb down 
our need to be compassionate towards ourselves and find it easier to project our compassion towards others and not back to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and in this current year that we've all been through, mm. where we've needed to dig so deeply to find the ways that we're being uncompassionate towards ourselves. And, and you know, we've, we've, we're nearly a year in <laughs> to this process of, yeah. of, of lockdown and life being very, very different for many of us. And yeah, I just, I just think it's fascinating that myself included, we'll find any way that we can other than to be compassionate towards Absolutely. ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's no question about it. And, and that is definitely because of society, but you go to another society and being self-compassionate is, is absolutely part of the fabric of their being. So it, it doesn't mean that it, um, it's, as a human, that we shouldn't be like that. We're, we're born to be like that. You know, this, um, this caring mechanism that we have, this self-caring mechanism that we have innately within us, um, it is there from birth. And, uh, but it's not nurtured. It just isn't. It's, it's kind of... Um, we're told that it's not the right thing. We shouldn't be doing it. We should be looking after others rather than looking after ourselves and things. And of course, it's right to look after others. You know, we are, um, we humans and community and society are really, really important. We need to stay connected without question. But we can't authentically stay connected and be compassionate without being self-compassionate um, in equal measures. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, that's why so many people are burning out. Why people, we're in such a, a state with some things um, because we're not being self-compassionate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really crucial that, that that's there for us and we, we rekindle that, yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, I think we aren't taught from an early age, as Daniel said, unless we're lucky, yeah. that having um, uncomfortable feelings is okay. Mm -hmm. And that quite often comes, I think, from the parents themselves not necessarily knowing what to do with their uncomfortable feelings. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. if they're faced with their child's uncomfortable feelings, it freaks them out because it triggers them. Right. And then the kids learn that it's not okay to express themselves, it's not okay to have a down day, or to say I'm feeling overwhelmed and this doesn't work for me. And, they, and, then they, and they don't even know that that's what's going on, they just know they feel rubbish. And then pick up all, you know, these coping strategies that are really unhealthy. And I'm sure we can all relate that we've got our own unhealthy coping strategies. And, uh, and what we're actually saying is with our mindfulness practice is that we're going to kind of pull back those layers. And I feel like we kind of, um, we heal the traumas of our own childhood and, and the generational traumas that have gone before by mm. doing this really important work. Mm. Um, and I'm, always banging on about this about saying you know you're not meant to feel while you're in your human body Buddhists would say while you're in samsara uh, mm. you're not many be you're not going to feel like mrs jolly all the time you know mm. always you know you, even if you're a flipping an awakened being you're mm. going to have sad days buddha cried yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it's full, it's the full technical experience to have emotions and you know with compassion it's like making the space for it Mm. making the space to feel all the feels and to know what to do with it in an intelligent way mm. and um i think you know you said earlier you know compassion practices are emerging and, and I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit more about if you can about where you see that going and um i know there, i know there's compassion centers opening now versus yeah. mindfulness centers. I can see Daniel wanting to jump in there maybe before you reply what were you going to say Daniel? I, I was just going to say what you've just described, I think, if we look at how a lot of yoga, mindfulness and well-being practices are sold to people, mm. it's, it's, it's on that false pretense mm. that everything's going to be all right. Yeah, yeah. And the only way things will be all right is if you've got the support network around you to be able to look at the really dark parts of yourself. Absolutely. And that doesn't get marketed, that doesn't get talked about, <laughs> that essentially, to use the, the slang word spiritual bypassing, it's exactly what that is. 
It's yeah. this false pretense that by doing this practice, you will feel better. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and often it's completely the opposite for a short period of time because you're opening up to the reality. And, and like Dawn says, this multi-generational, so it's generation after generation of trauma and abuse. And through no fault of anybody's, we carry it through, we pass it on, we, they pass it on to the next and so on. Um, so when you, you realize, which is what I did, when you realize actually, I don't want to pass this on, it, it's, not a, it's not a comfortable place to be. It, it, it takes courage, you know, and, and that courage comes from support, um, but it, and that knowing that it's the right time somehow for you to do this work. Um, and yes, it can be, it can be very, very painful um, for a period of time. But what keeps you going is that knowing that other people have been through it, other people have experienced this for thousands of years. This is not a new thing that's just come in seven years ago, which is what somebody said to me the other day, that this new mindfulness thing, it, it's been around for, for a very, very long time. And we do absolutely need to surround ourselves with people who have been there and done it. They completely get it. You don't even have to find language for it. There's that resonance, that empathy, that understanding that, that this, is, um, this is, could be painful and it does take courage, but you keep going and you will get to through it to a different place. Not to say again that you're um, going to be blissfully happy forever, but it, it means that we're, we're like a mountain in the middle, a steady um, mountain which has a strong base with all the weather of our emotions and our thoughts and our feelings going around the outside. But we're we're in the centre of it, you know, calmness abiding most of the time, <laughs> not all the time, but most of the time. And that that feels completely different than the way that I used to be, which was where I used to be buffeted around by other people's emotions and their beliefs and their thoughts and I, their wants and their needs. And now it's actually, what about me in all of this? Um, in, a, in a kindly way. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, there's so much in there, isn't there, um, about how it doesn't make commercial sense to say that you're going to experience pain <laughs> if, if you really face what's there. But there's something around people come to, to mindfulness and compassion because they have suffered or there's something innate that they they feel that this would be helpful so it's good to acknowledge that everybody who comes to say to a mindfulness-based stress reduction course or whatever they're not coming because their life is a breeze they're coming because there's something in them that that um is saying why don't you try this out this might help and so as when you're teaching um and supporting others in this it's, it's so helpful to have an understanding of that um, and to take it gently and take things slowly and tenderly. Um, and yeah, it makes, makes such a difference in quite a short period of time for some people. You, um, you, are you, you've probably heard about these compassion centers that are opening mm, over, I think yeah. in America. Yeah. And, uh, I agree with you. I think it's the, it, everybody, I, I'm just um, in the middle of listening to the a compassion summit, which is, yes yes and a few other people that's are. right yeah it's freaking brilliant it's it just is brilliant con i was kind of humming and hawing and it's probably some of the best money i've ever spent and it wasn't expensive um these mm. are for those of you who maybe haven't heard of christopher german really worth checking him out we'll put his links in the bio of the mm. podcast he's mm. he's incredible but you know where do you see What's your hope that compassion practices go do you hope to see compassion centers opening or some something different yeah, look, I've, I've been part of the whole wave, really, of mindfulness um, from the clinical world into um, sort of the general <laughs> um, society. And this is coming with compassion. There's no question. And in fact, uh, friends of mine in America are saying mindfulness centres are closing and being um, making way for compassion centres, which is extraordinary. And there has to be a balance somewhere along the line. But I do think... Um, it, in this lockdown situation that uh, kindness and compassion have become very common in our language where it wasn't, you know, even this time last year or say 18 months ago. So um, certainly this 
being more authentically compassionate to ourselves and other people and being kinder, you know, just being kinder. It has become really powerful and um, yeah, more and more compassion um, centers or um, courses or whatever are going to be um, coming over here. And, and again, it's not a surprise that the Integrating Mindfulness and Compassion course um, has become so popular in recent years because, and most people say it's the compassion element that has drawn them in. So uh, certainly there is gonna be more compassion. Um, and my real hope is that people learn to be more self-compassionate. I, I think we're okay with compassion for others as a general rule. Um, I, but I feel self-compassion really needs a, a light shining on it. Uh, and we need support with that. And um, there are some wonderful courses and trainings and things out there to teach um, how to become more self-compassionate and also how to compete, um, to teach that to other people. Um, and I would love it if it were in mindfulness and compassion were in every school, in every office, in every organization that we could access um, these wonderful skills um, wherever we are, whatever our age, and this is this becomes the norm, and that it becomes a cult, it, it, sort of woven into the culture of these organisations, so that it's not just a sticking plaster, which it has been, um, but, but it's changing now. So it's no longer just, oh, we've got to tick that box. Yes, we'll do some mindfulness and compassion. We'll just tick that box, do a half an hour presentation, and then at least we've done that for a, you know half a year or whatever. Um, it's how we can really build it as the foundation of, of the school or the organization, the workplace, wherever we are, um, at spending a lot of our time and, and learn these skills, relearn these skills so that people can just um, use this language, use this behavior um, commonly amongst each other, which is why I do a lot of work around teaching teams within organizations there's no point just teaching one lone wolf <laughs> how to be mindful and compassionate um, because they'll just not be able to converse and communicate with others on the same level. So if we teach teams and then those teams become the whole organization and then that becomes part of society, that would be amazing. And I genuinely can see that there is an avenue, there's a thirst for it there's money being put aside for it. And I feel really, really strongly that this is the trajectory, um, the way that we're going, um, particularly in wake of the, the global pandemic, which has traumatized us globally mm -hmm. and will resonate for, for many years to come. And people have felt more vulnerable, they felt more open and there's opportunities to help us to heal ourselves and, and come back into the world in a very different way. So I'm quite excited about it. Um, I'm excited about how things have the potential to be. And I hope aligned with that is, is more um, awareness of the climate and how we care for our world as a whole. So how we care for ourselves in our communities, our populations and the planet that we all love so much. So, so by being self-compassionate, the resonance of that is just global. Mm. You know, there's, there's two things that come, come to mind when you were saying that. I was kind of um, hearing the voice of somebody I know in my head and thinking that that person was listening to this needed to say, it's all very well thinking about all that stuff, but I'd never get anything done. I know exactly what this person would say. Mm. And mm. it really comes down to them not being self-compassionate themselves with no resources. No, they aren't resourced up to see beyond, you know, their current situation. I think that's often what happens, isn't it? When people are lacking any self-compassion, they become almost tunnel visioned mm -hmm. and can't have this wider view. And that has an impact, doesn't it, on lots of different things like their brain, their physiology, their relationships. Could you talk a, just a, let's not go too sciencey because I'll start. Yeah, okay. So All right. I'll zone out. I want to understand what you're saying. I can't, I've no, I've no brain cells for science, but um, if you, I know you're very eloquent at explaining. Can you talk a little bit about what is the science that's going on inside people when they start doing a self-compassion mindfulness practice? 
Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> such a lot happens. So yeah, I'll, I'll keep it um, palatable. Um, so yeah, we have an autonomic nervous system. And um, there are three branches, but the two main branches that we're uh, interested in is the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight and flight. So a lot of people live their lives a lot of the time in fight and flight. Uh, we didn't used to, um, you know, in the 1980s, um, we were studying levels of stress and anxiety and the levels that we uh, were seeing as clinical levels in the 70s and 80s are now seen in this day and age as the normal levels, which is really worrying that we, we live our lives and we think, it's, we think it's normal and natural to be in this sympathetic nervous system fight and flight all the time. Um, and that's not healthy for us. We're releasing adrenaline and cortisol, and that has a very detrimental impact on our physiology, um, as well as our emotions and our mental well-being. So, uh, you know, cortisol, um, there's a lot of inflammation. So that may, precipitates uh, all these chronic diseases, a lot of chronic diseases, um, through the proliferation of cortisol um, long-term. Cortisol's great short-term, if you need to cross a road and a, a car's coming, adrenaline cortisol will get you across that road pretty damn quick. But we don't want that to be being excreted all the time. Uh, so the parasympathetic, the rest and digest part of the nervous system is, is what's switched on, generally speaking, through mindfulness and compassion and, and mindful movement yoga practice, um, which helps the body to calm down, to settle, um, to to heal, to, to the immune system, to build up, to replenish and so on. So there's so many positive benefits of doing that. So that the more that we practice, the stronger the signals um, become to, to switch on the parasympathetic nervous system and that become the more dominant um, part of the nervous system once more. So it really is like flicking a switch. So that, that's a really, really uh, important part of what it is that we're doing is we're, we're finding that redressing the balance. So if you just think back to the 70s and 80s, when we didn't have computers, we didn't have all of these devices, we didn't have all these things that set off the fight and flight. Um, you know, I remember as a child, I lived in the countryside and when I moved back from Australia and just sitting, looking out of my window for an hour up down the valley. Um, and very clearly it was, I was in rest and digest, but we're as a society much more in this doing mode, aren't we? And we think that because we're accomplishing things, we're doing, 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 and, and that being is lazy or Dis, um, disconnected or something um, and actually it's not it's quite the opposite so neurologically when we're in our parasympathetic we're in that rest and digest our brain um, operates in a completely different way it is more connected it's more connected front to back left to right um, so we have more ideas we're more creative we're able to concentrate better because we're not flitting off all over the place um, and for me, in, in my life, in the work that I've done, we, we become more emotionally stable. So I used to be really overwhelmed by my emotions. I used to live my life through my heartfelt emotions. And my, that, that meant that my um, head couldn't kick in, my, my thinking processes couldn't kick in. And I was, um, I, you know, I was quite tearful and um, just not understanding why other people couldn't see it you know is that sensitive type of person but that overwhelm was there and the more I practice mindfulness um, the more that I got clarity of mind and now I feel there's a balance there's a balance between my thinking processes that, that I have got the capacity to to let the muddy waters in a, in a glass of water with silt I have that capacity to let that settle and for the water to clear again and neurologically, that's exactly what's happening. Um, so we, I have, we have, one can develop um, a capacity to down-regulate the emotional um, centers of the brain, which are firing off, like the amygdala, which is in the middle of the brain, the, the areas to do with traumatic um, memories um, are softened. They're, they're down-regulated so that the trauma is not always coming back time and again.
So um, lots of different things. The left prefrontal cortex um, lights up when we um, do our practice. And that's the center of our, of the part of the brain that uh, responds and creates this sense of happiness within us. So that the more we practice, the more we fire that up, the more neurons are, are wired together. So the happier we become internally and externally, having a sunnier outlook, a more positive aspect to our lives. Um, so yeah, there's a chapter on it in my book <laughs> on, on the neuroscience. So yes, I could go on. <laughs> I, I, I love your book. Thank I, you. As I teach a lot of mindfulness and a lot of mindfulness courses, I am um, before I start any new course, I have a quick flick through and remind myself because mm -hmm. as you, as Karen knows very well, I love a ramble. I'll go, I'll go off on a ramble, and it help, it helps me to um, to kind of really frame my frame my teaching in a really really powerful way. I think just I'm just mindful of our time, and I really do want you to talk about this a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how how we can use your book? within therapeutic practice and and you know the process what what process of inquiry really means yeah yeah thank you uh so the reason i wrote the book is because the mindfulness and and compassion practices they're so powerful as i've we've been exploring and explaining but often it's what happens afterwards when we can sit with um exploring for ourselves what happened during the practice is when we do a lot of learning about ourselves and we can um, really uh, explore the patterns that we have and the effect of practice and how that differs perhaps to the way that we normally live our lives and so on. Um, in the clinical world, often we're counseling and um, asking people questions, but in the meditation world, it's not generally seen as being something that um, is prevalent after teaching. So I, um, because I've got a clinical background and because I do teach practices and then ask questions around it, and I recognize lots of other people were, when I was doing teacher training, were struggling with what to ask and how to ask it. Um, I, I thought that it'd be really helpful to write a book about it. And it, inquiry is um, this art of self-reflection of really um, exploring and looking inwards into what's happening for us uh, during the practice. So the book is for people who are interested in self-inquiry. And I have developed something called an iceberg model, which helps to take us through uh, the different levels of experience during the practice over time. And, what, and with some suggestions as to what kind of questions to ask yourself if, if you're uh, spending time after practice. So you can look at those uh, questions and maybe just use them as reflections of, well, what did that feel like? Or how was that to notice that I calmed down uh, by watching my breath? And how could I integrate that into my daily life a little bit more? So there are questions around the mindfulness and more about um, how could I be kinder to myself within my life? And how did it feel to be bringing self-soothing phrases to myself during my practice and how can that um, benefit me further in my life. So there's a lot around the questions, the self-reflections um, within the after practice for individuals. Um, but because I spend a lot of my time training students to become mindfulness and compassion teachers, uh, I have also um, included a lot of references and information about how to model, become uh, model yourself as a mindfulness and compassion teacher and how that comes from within, doing the practices in other words and doing the work on yourself. Um, also looking at the neuroscience, as I say, and, um, a friend of mine, um, Dr. Judy Edgington has um, written that chapter, um, who's a neuroscientist. Uh, so yeah, it's for people who are new to inquiry or who are looking at working with other people with inquiry and um, would really benefit from a framework to do that work from and then I do say the, the more competent you get and the more confident you get um, with teaching uh, in, and guiding inquiry you can put the book back on the shelf because you maybe not won't need it quite so much and um, so it, it's very much for people who are new to it and um, 
it's as a tool, a resource for people to be able to dip into to to really understand the richness that can arise from the inquiry process. Hmm. It's such a wonderful resource, Karen, to have. It really is. It's, you know, from my personal practice, you know, just the ability to be able to, 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 to ask those deeper questions to yourself and know that there is support out there mm. whether it's through books whether it's through a community whether it's through you know having a therapeutic relationship with someone but just understanding that other people have been through this and it's okay to feel all these things yeah. and this is what you need to do to maybe just start to work towards that next step yeah. Yeah. to know that that's there is so powerful for people mm. and you know what an amazing gift that you've put out there for for everybody mm. um I was just reflecting actually on other than when um, I met you through yoga campus and the yoga therapy training, we had a week in France together on a retreat and I still speak to those people um, that we went on retreat with. We had such an amazing week and it was just wonderful, wasn't it? It was yeah, yourself and, and Lisa Kaylee Isley um, held space for us in this beautiful rural French farmhouse that was just yeah it was just wonderful and yeah. my gosh if I think back to then and what's grown from then mm. for me personally and I know so many of the others that were there yeah. as well yeah you know, so just a massive thank you for for that influence and just holding that space for us at that time oh it's absolutely my pleasure yeah I hold a very um, special place in my heart um, for that retreat week it was it was really something else wasn't it so thank you <laughs> it was it was really wonderful mm. yeah, you're so welcome so it's round about time for us to, to round up so thank you so much Karen for being here today it's been a real pleasure to to spend this time with you and thank you for all you've done and you continue to do you know just if people want to find you, they can find you at your Mindfulness UK website where there's a link to the book and all your trainings that you do and silent retreats and your professional trainings that you offered for, for, for people in professional bodies and organisations. Mm -hmm. um, and is there anywhere else people can get you? Do you have Instagram or Facebook or? Yes, yes. <laughs> and LinkedIn. So, yeah, all three. So, yeah. All of the above. UK. <laughs> or mindfulnessuk.com um, on the website, then there's a contact form on there. So yeah, it'd be lovely. If, if you want to learn more things about mindfulness and compassion, let me know and hopefully we can help you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Karen. Oh, thank you. So um, next week, Dawn and I are interviewing um, a yoga teacher uh, who is also a doctor, um, Dr. Andrew McGonigal. Um, he is called Dr. Yogi. <laughs> um, he is um, an Irish gentleman, but he's currently living in LA. Um, so we'll be speaking to him um, next week and talking about he's, he's done this amazing body of work all around kind of busting some myths around what you get taught in yoga teach training school around alignment and around kind of the way that we get told to be very descriptive and prescriptive about alignment. And he's done this amazing work, which is actually very funny and he's very funny and he's got a real kind of way of presenting. So we're really looking forward to, to chatting with Andrew. Um, so until next time, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you would like to review us, you can find us on the Apple Podcasts app. Um, please do share with others and leave us a review of honestly what you thought of the podcast today. So until next time, thank you, Karen. Thank you, Dawn. And we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye now.